if you want to be a guest, please email me. I have received so many emails of people that are excited and passionate about being a guest on this show. The process is time consuming. I go through about an hour long pre-interview and I determine where you'd fit best in the season. So if you've gone through the pre-interview process or we've messaged back and forth via email and haven't gone through the pre-interview process, I'm not ignoring you, I, I promise. There's just a lot on my plate and I am one person. That being said, I look forward to talking with every one of you that is interested in being on this podcast. Y'all are amazing. And I honestly could not do this podcast without the support that I receive from each one of you. So thank you so much. We were coined as Gothard Girls because we were one of Bill Gothard's favorites. I was actually, when I was at headquarters, it was derogatory that I would be called Bill's pet. Oh yeah, no, you've got to get back for this because Bill's pet and all. Or, yeah, be careful, she's Bill's pet. Meaning that I spent more time with him, that he paid attention to where I was, what I was doing. I was under his eye, as they say in The Handmaid's Tale. And so, yeah, it was not cute to be called a Gothard girl. No one, no girl that I'm aware of was angling for that. We didn't ask for this. We simply existed with our energetic energy. We existed with our vibrancy and our desire to please, which we were indoctrinated and conditioned with. And he took advantage of that. And he would find his sparkly objects. I always called us broken birds. Welcome to the Focus on Your Own Family podcast. Fundamentalist evangelicalism impacted a generation. We survived physical, psychological, mental, and spiritual abuse. We survived the Focus on the Family movement, and we want to talk about it. Trigger warning, guests will be sharing stories of domestic violence, child abuse, and animal abuse. Please listen with caution. Thank you. This is Lindsay. Here is her story. Hey, Lindsay. Oh my gosh. Hi, Stephanie. <laughs> it's not like we haven't talked a lot in these last every day. <laughs> right. Every day since the last episode. Exactly. <laughs> Which I love. Um, yeah. I honestly, through this whole thing, I've been, I, I wouldn't say that I'm bragging, but it's, I'm just so thankful being in this space that I have met some people that I, I know I will be friends with for so long because we all connect on a very deep level immediately. And I'm just, I'm grateful. So I'm grateful for you. And it's, it's very strange for me to, to say that because I have to frame it in a way that's not evangelical. Right. And that's always challenging. What I'd like to do, one, obviously ask how you're doing, but two, just get right into it because this is part two. And we're going to talk about EMDR. We're going to talk about (sighs) disentangling. (laughs) Ginger Tucker. (laughs) We're going to disentangle Ginger Ginger Tucker. Tucker. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to talk about what you're doing right now. Obviously, this minute you're 
podcasting with me, but (laughs) what you do for a profession, because prior to shiny, happy people, you were living your life and people didn't know Lindsay as your former Lindsay. People knew you as Lindsay hair and makeup artist. So Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that. Um, So how are you? I'm so good. I'm tired a little bit, yeah. <laughs> but we've been doing a reconstruction on our home. Um, and it's been about a year now that we've been in the thick of this. And then with the storm that hit California last two weeks ago, I think, um, it just absolutely messed up and set back some things with our home renovations because we had some flooding issues. So we are just trying to get back on track. So, you know, doing yeah. as we do whenever bad shit hits the fan. We just, we just dig in as trauma cult, ex-cult victims do. We, we thrive and survive. (laughs) Yeah. It, it's, it's a bit strange now that I'm, now that I'm out for so long, so long. I mean, it doesn't see it. It seems long for me. I still am able to get into that, like, functioning at, at my best level (laughs) because we were taught, we were brought up in a hypervigilant world. So when really difficult, traumatic things happen, yes, I'm going to make this decision. I feel very decisive. However, I also see that my sensory nervous system has come down Mm -hmm. and starting to really find that baseline. So I recognize in that hyper arousal state where I'm so easily hyper triggered. Yeah. Whereas things might not bother me when I'm at my normal baseline as much. When I'm in a space of needing to highly function, I can be very quick, um, quick to snap at something yeah. when I'm feeling hyper triggered because it brings back those those feelings <clears throat> of feeling so unsafe in my body and in the world around, and I start to question myself and my yeah. decisions so much more. Um, and that I, I feel like that actually segues really beautifully into the place of EMDR. But but what I wanted to start out with to go into EMDR, what does the term Gothard Girls mean to you? And how do you go back to that with EMDR therapy? Mm, really, really great question. Um, Gothard Girls is a term that the girls themselves do not use. Um, I would, I would never identify myself as, yeah, I'm a Gothard girl. Like that was uh, not, not the way we did it uh, at headquarters or anyone that I was aware of that might have Bill's attention. But we were, we were coined as Gothard girls because we were one of Bill Gothard's favorites. Um, I was actually, when I was at headquarters, it was derogatory that I would be called Bill's pet. Oh yeah, no, you've got to get back for this. Cause you know, Bill's pet and all, or yeah, be careful. She's Bill's pet. Um, meaning that I spent more time with him that, um, he paid attention to where I was, what I was doing. I was under his eye, as they say in the handmaid's tale. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was not cute to be called a Gothard girl. No one, no girl like that I'm aware of was angling for that. You know, we didn't ask for this. We simply existed with our energetic energy. We existed with our vibrancy 
and our desire to please, which we were indoctrinated and conditioned with. And he took advantage of that. And he would find his sparkly objects. You know, um, I always called us broken birds. I think he just, as predators do, I think that he was able to find broken people very easily. And I find it very fascinating as like a personality um, experiment when I look at him, when I consider these things about him. What was it that drew him to certain people? Because he didn't know me in that breakfast room when he saw me for the very first time with such fixation. He had met me before at different seminars. Uh, When I went to Excel, I had met him there as well, but it was not with this wondrous attention that I received a couple years later. I think it was might might have been like two or three years later that he met me in the breakfast room, but he laser beam fixated right on me. I had nothing to do with that, but simply existing as a human being on this earth. Um, so yeah, the Gothic girl is not something that we choose to identify ourselves by, but obviously it is what we are called in that we received special attention from Bill. And now I think it's a little bit more focused as a Gothard girl because it, I think has been labeled to those that were a part of the lawsuit, those of us who experienced sexual harassment and abuse and potentially further from him. So it's not a nice thing to be called. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, go ahead. I was just going to ask the question, when you meet her during EMDR, what do you say? So my my EMDR session, for those of you who aren't aware of what EMDR is, it is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And it is a really in-depth, amazing, but also difficult journey to go down. It is a bilateral movement uh, that they use in order to allow your brain to get into a space where it does not seek fight or flight. So you are following either a light bar with your eyes that go back and forth left to right, or you're tapping on your clavicles or your lap when you're sitting, you're tapping on the upper parts of your thighs, your therapist, if you're in person, they might actually do the same where they will tap on you on your knees without, therefore you don't have to do it. But um, from all of my experiences, I was doing the bilateral tapping on my own because I did most of my sessions partly through COVID. And so I was doing them online. And so I tapped on myself. But um, that, like I said, that bilateral movement allows your mind to not try to fight or flight things. You're actually able to find a space within your mind where you're actually able to recall up and reprocess certain things that you've either repressed that are too scary to really want to talk about. Um, And I have been through some pretty deep, deep, difficult conversations in therapy. One of them was in dealing with Bill Gothard. Now, (laughs) the interesting thing with this, so I know on the previous one, I think we talked for a minute or two about how I spoke with my younger self and my teenage self. They all presented at a table in probably one of the worst places for me as a child and a teenager. So I had interesting conversations with them, have had to go back multiple times, especially to talk to the angry teenager. Now, when it came to headquarters in Bill Gothard, it was actually a very different experience. I I didn't just like, all of a sudden, I'm sitting across from the Lindsay of 1996 to 1999. I was actually walking through the grounds and looking at different things as me now. 
Um, so like reminiscing almost of, and I would see it as it was back then, not what it is now, which is hyper dilapidated. But I saw it for the shininess that it was and how beautiful things were back then. And I begrudged all of it. Like I was really angry towards all of it because it was such a facade. And at one point I go into Bill Gothard's office, which is where the most egregious actions between he and I happened. And I sit down at the desk where I used to sit and he's not in the room, but I can just feel his presence. And I've, I feel not, I feel even worse now than I did back then where I just didn't understand what was going on. I feel like more panic because I'm able to see just because of how much time has gone by and how much distance is on it and how much more informed I am and my awareness of his actions towards others. I just feel like I really am in the room with a tiger. I am in a room with somebody who does not have my best interest at heart. And as I'm sitting there contemplating this in my EMDR and my mind's playing this out for me, all of a sudden behind me, there is a box that just starts rattling like the Muppet animal is in it, just like mm. rattle, rattle, rattle. And I am so like, even now telling it, I get goose tingles all up the back of my neck. But I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, there is something in the room and it's in the box behind me. And I don't know if that's just like the tiger of Bill Gothard and his spirit's going to just emerge into the room. But what is this? And it got to a point where I actually was having so much duress about this feeling of something in there is enraged and it's coming for me. And I don't, want to know what it is because it feels like if I open it, it will fully overtake the room and I don't know what's going to happen. We decided to put that on hold and we got out of the session. This is what I love about EMDR is you can fade out of a session, even though that was hyper, you can come back to it later and address it when you're feeling a little more calm and like ready in your mind mm-hmm. to deal with it. So a couple sessions later or the next session, a week later, we go back in and I'm dealing with other things. And all of a sudden, I was just like, I started realizing just how angry I was at everything that had gone on in my life and how much of it was due to Bill himself. Not Bill. When I was 10 years old, Bill wasn't sitting in my kitchen making me go through the wisdom booklets, but my parents were obeying Bill. My parents had completely hook, line, and sinker gone into all of this. So they... He's at our dinner table. He might as well be. He's when I wake up. He's what I wear. He's why my hair is the way it is. He's why purity culture exists for me. He's why every single thing I do, he's just why I do it. So I started really feeling so much enraged energy. And I'm not, I think one of the the hardest um, emotions I actually have expressing is anger. And it's because it's one of the things that we were truly pressured to oppress and to just literally snuff out in ourselves. Anger cannot exist in us or we're not an empty enough and open enough vessel for God. And if we get angry, we Mm -hmm. give ground to Satan and then the whole world, your whole soul Mm -hmm. crumbles. So I could feel this just like atom bomb ready to explode. And all of a sudden, I'm just like wanting to crawl out of my skin and just like bang on something. And I'm immediately in the box. I'm in the box in Bill's office banging. So hearing him just wanting to like hit on things going, this is so unfair and this should have never happened to me. And I was constantly put in these spaces of 
with no safety and danger. And yet I'm told that like I'm lulled into a sense of safety and security because it's him and because it's my parents. And I'm all, all I've ever done is listen to everybody else and never to myself. And I'm just like, I just wanted to hit stuff. And I was the rage in the box that was sitting behind me. Wow. And I just, yeah, I get <laughs> I, literally my whole body is just covered in goosebumps right now. But um, as soon as I realized that all of the sudden my mind gets out of that situation and I'm no longer, cause I'm claustrophobic. So I'm like, I got out of that box, realized that I was that in that room, that box was going to always remain there. I decided this is not anger that needs to be quieted, resolved, fixed, or whatnot. All of a sudden there were chains wrapped around the box. So it rattles even more. It's so loud. And I just started to walk out of Bill's office and I walked out the, there's this, these double doors that walk out of this building. And then you go down these really beautiful hills. And I started walking away down these hills. And the whole time I could hear that box rattling again, like animal Muppet is in there just continuing. And I realized as I walked away, I'm like, you know what, this part of my story is a pop up book. And I can close this book and put it on a shelf. But that anger will always rattle that anger is allowed to be there along with my story. And it, I will never mm-hmm. not be angry. And that anger is not wrong because it propelled me to begin to speak out. It propelled me to say enough is enough. It just unfortunately took 23 years <laughs> to get to that place. Um, but justifiable anger and complete rage at a man who destroyed my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I realized in, because with the EMDR, you're able to, to see this and go, yeah, I am actually really angry. I'm not hiding it. I don't feel like I don't have a barrier of, oh, that's the expectations that people have of me. I'm really able to sit in my own truth and accept what I see and what I understand and what I know to be inherently 100%. No one's hoodwinking me. Your therapist isn't whispering different ideas in your head to try to get you to think differently at Mm -hmm. all. There's a constant walk of, you should check out this box. What is this? What do you think that this box could be? It's you're never given a lot of clues to it as far as your therapist is concerned, which again, it keeps it all within yourself to understand you and your nuances of your stories. But I was able to really acknowledge I was angry. And also I knew that my course of action was going to be to speak out against Bill Gothard and the documentary Mm -hmm. and all of this. Um, The other little caveat I'll say with EMDR and then we can move on. I had um, I had a session where I went there back to headquarters again, back to this building where Bill's office was. And I was walking through the area and I am in the skirt like I'm wearing the skirt. I've got the blouse on. I'm just like, ugh. Mm-hmm. and as I'm standing there, just like reminiscing on this and feeling so heartbroken seems to be a, a pretty big theme with me. I'm just like, just heartbroken mm-hmm. and disappointed that this is how so much time was absorbed with this horrible, these experiences. And as I'm standing there, there's someone else in the dining room with me and she's wearing a white t-shirt and jeans, long hair, but I don't get to see her face. And she just, she's never really, she never looks at me directly. I don't really hear a voice from her. She was just like come, giving me this come with me, like follow me. So again, we go out these double doors that are in the front of this building through this dining hall. We walk out these double doors onto the grass and she's just always a little bit further ahead of me. 
And I'm like, where are we going? What's happening here? And uh, I keep looking back at the at the staff center and I have a bittersweet thing with headquarters. It's something that has always, it frustrates me because I do have good memories there. It's not like every single moment was horrible. I have had great friends. I had wonderful experiences, though steeped in all of this uh, indoctrination. So it's hard sometimes to pull them all apart and be like, well, this was good. This was bad. I, it was formative years too. And I'm 18 to 21. So it was like this time of life mm-hmm. where it just every I felt like I was doing all the right things and um, helping people. And now you're looking at it back going, I don't, I just continued to perpetuate the system. And, and I wasn't helping really, if I, if I'm honest with myself, like I was continuing to help other people harm other people. And it just really sucks. So Anyway, it's a beautiful property. We're walking along and I just continue to follow her. And I'm like, what are you, where is she leading me? And all of a sudden I start remembering good memories. Like that's where I met my husband. Like I can't fully hate the whole experience because again, in one hand I hate and I am so angry at Bill. And then on the other hand, I'm like, I met the love of my life who I'm still married to 23 years later. So she's reminding me of these things and I'm like, okay, valid, valid, right? Like I can't hate this whole place. We're just going to keep the anger box in Bill's office. And then we get down to the front of the property, if you will. And as I'm looking back, she kind of gets closer to me and I'm like, well, I still don't know who the hell you are. And I'm thinking like, maybe it's one of my best friends and someone, someone who's like, I don't know, been on this journey with me. And as we're standing there, (laughs) she reaches her hand out to me. Like, we can get through this together. And I'm like, yeah, but who are you? And what is this togetherness supposed to mean? And she reaches out and grabs my hand. And I instantly am like, well, holy shit, you're me. Like, I was with me the whole time. Like this person, even though I'm the one that's doing the therapy and I'm wearing the skirt and that seems to always be my identity of back at that time, I realized like, wait, this, she is the part of me that I'm so disconnected from that doesn't worry about all of the other stuff that says like, yeah, it happened. We don't have to be always in this energy of the negativity or the things that don't make sense. We don't have to make sense of all of this. We can pick out the things that that were positive for us and we can move on from this place. It does not have to be this bittersweet memory anymore. We had some good things. The rest sucks. Just move on. And I love that she was in jeans and a t-shirt, like just the whole like Bill's Rebel rebel outfit. And it, it helped me also to realize like, then moving forward through a lot of my EMDR, I was no longer in the skirt. Whereas in a, for a while, when I was going through these processes, I was in a skirt and blouse, even though I was like, "Ugh, this isn't what I want. But clearly, my mind was still identifying and putting myself in that space in that same frame that I was in before. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, honey, you don't. I, even my own self was telling me, stop doing this to yourself. Stop regressing back to those moments and being that exact person at that exact time, mm-hmm. you don't have to look at it like that anymore. And again, I, with EMDR, I learned how to put my body and my mind together because they have been at odds mm. together for most of my life. Um, we're taught to deny self. We're taught to deny feeling. Um, and even just what I just said just now, I get goosebumps all over my body. And it's literally my body saying, yes, yes, you're, you're literally saying the right things right now. Um, as an as a 
affirmation or confirmation. Again, it's so hard sometimes when you don't want to talk spiritually, but like as a confirmation of what I was just saying, and my body will do that and just give me these goosebumps of like, yes, we're affirming to you that this, you are on the right track, Lindsay, of what you just said. Um, And so I'm very grateful to EMDR for those types of strengths that it's given me, the ability to see Mm -hmm. a lot more clearly my own story and it somehow is really interesting how you're the, it sounds like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, but the answers were with you the whole time. Like you had the shoes to get home the yeah. whole time. And I find yep. that EMDR is very similar to that. Like the answers are within ourselves. We know what's right and wrong. We really do at the end of the day, but we're so steeped in that control and conditioning. And even if we're we're trying not to be, it's conditioning for a reason. That's why they call it conditioning <laughs> because you are so conditioned to have responses that just become robotic. I don't try to have these knee-jerk reactions like you were saying with trauma and feeling triggered. I don't attempt those things. I don't try to be triggered so I can just be this cool person of like, oh, I'm always triggered by trauma. Um, like just like other girls, no one wants that. Trust and believe. If anyone thinks we're out here just trying to make trauma cool, we're trying to normalize the fact that trauma is so hard to break from. It's really what it's about. Yeah. I like how you said that we're not walking around thinking it's really cool to be like, I'm triggered. That's not a thing. I don't use that as an excuse. I use it as a, I don't use triggered as an excuse. I use triggered as a Mm -hmm. tool in my life. And I now approach it with curiosity, whereas I used to get really angry and just stay angry. And I didn't understand anger. So I didn't understand that anger is actually a tool and it's a thermometer. I didn't understand that. Now I can. And now I can say, okay, so what about this is actually bothering me Mm -hmm. right now? What am I, what need isn't getting met or what do I feel is preventing me from feeling safe in myself? Because that's really what it comes down to. Essentially my inner child or other books can say ego, Mm. right? It's the, it's that point of saying, I'm unsafe. I'm unsafe. Somebody help me. And just, it's just spilling over. So now I can look at that. And there are some things that will leave me in that hyper triggered, hyper arousal state for a number of days. And then there are things where I now realize if I have a situation where I feel like I'm going to be misunderstood or I know that I'm misunderstood, that will make me feel triggered because with what I grew up in, if you're misunderstood, it's it's not like it's life or death, like somebody's going to come and chase after you and try to kill you. That's not it. But it's life or death in the social sphere of things. So if somebody misunderstands you, then you can be ostracized from your entire community. Mm -hmm. And what if they misunderstand you and they're not going to follow the gospel now? And so you just sent them on the trajectory of going to hell for all eternity because you didn't say something right. You misrepresented yourself, which means you misrepresented your church and the pastor and the Bible and Jesus. So yeah. Bill Gothard had in his wisdom booklets, he had a section called the power of precision. And yeah, and I, so as you were talking, even like, oh, like there, there was something to the power of our words, to being precise in what we say, to how we articulate, 
um, to be as accurate and as clear as possible because you don't want to mislead someone like you just said. You don't want to mislead someone down the path of unrighteousness or um, lead them to misperceive something that, you know, Christians, for the most part, are incredibly clear people. Now, it may not make sense to a non-Christian because they aren't steeped in the religion of mm-hmm. Christianity. But if you're with other Christians, we know exactly what each, what each other is saying. And that fear of gossip, too, um, I think plays a really big role because Christians are some of the gossipiest little people on the planet, too. And you know that you, like you said, will be ostracized if you are misunderstood or misspeak. There's not a lot of grace um, in Christianity for those who misspeak or are misunderstood because what what they fail to do is ask for clarification. And curiosity is not acceptable in Christianity. Curiosity kills the cat. Curiosity pulls back the curtains of the parts of their religion that is not accurate and doesn't make any sense. And so, yeah, you can't be curious and ask someone um, in faith, you know, well, what did you mean? That's what I love now about feeling freer and giving myself permission to ask questions, to be curious, to want to know the why. We're allowed to want to know the why, even if you are a Christian, want to know the why. Yeah, I I appreciate that. There's something that Christians do or evangelicals do. And that is, you can tell me something, Lindsay, and then I can say, okay, I heard this God is showing me this. And it's just that it's that once and for all, right? So if I say I've prayed about this, you can't refute that. If you are a... Well, because it's drop mic. Exactly. If you say I've prayed about it and God told me this, you've just dropped mic. Mm -hmm. There's no... There's no room for questioning. There's no room for error. There's nothing. Okay, well, if God told you, I guess that's literally the trump card. You just like literally throw that down and there you go. Okay, well, I guess God told you. It's terrifying too. Um, I think of all the really bad situations that I was put in because God told somebody that that was a good (laughs) idea. Yes. Um, Before we move into uh, J-Doug and her book, which actually just talks about uh i i just said every j doug like fifty thousand of them no all the j's um there every single one of them is a j doug right. actually um, <laughs> that's hilarious uh, you have been married for 23 years and i have been married mm-hmm. for 19 amazing um Congrats. yeah it's um talk to me about what that's like because i i think that Oh gosh, you and I could probably just continue this. <laughs> and she's back we could have for another part podcast. 25. Next, yeah. <laughs> like, because this is so this is so rare that you and I can sit down and have a very practical real conversation about what it's like to be married inside of a cult mm-hmm. and come out of it still married. And we, we're, there's so many things that make this a very rare situation because I am very fortunate to have married a man who is one of the kindest humans on the planet. Like he, he's just, he, he's the antithesis of the toxic mask male that the evangelical paints, right? Mm -hmm. He's always 
encouraged me and pushed me to follow my dreams and my passions. And he's never said, no, that's not possible. Or like that he's just always wanted to help me and support me, which is just not how it goes for a lot of people. It doesn't come without its challenges, right? Like we're trying to figure out, wow, we got married inside of a cult. We got married inside of a cult. So like when that really sinks in, you know, my, my dad was the one that approached me and said, this is the one that God told me, this is who you're going to marry. And great that we have chemistry, right? Like he's fantastic. Um, and what does that look like? Here we are 19 years into marriage, but 21 years into being together. It's unraveling. overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. It's overwhelming. It's, um, I think purity culture, first off, is so traumatic for anybody to go through, uh, mm-hmm. male or female, because you are kept from even understanding the, just the, um, the mechanics of sex. Mm-hmm. You don't understand the playfulness that can happen also with sex. Mm -hmm. Um, The way that I was raised in fundamentalism, you (laughs) sex is only for one thing. Mm -hmm. It is to procreate. There's no other reason for it. And a lot of females don't understand that there is pleasure that could be had on their side. Um, And they're also told as females to be joyfully available at any and all times and to (laughs) just be ready because apparently men just need it 24 seven. Yep. And I will be really frank with you. I never wanted to get married simply because of that. I was not interested in being someone's sex toy. And I didn't even know the extent of what any of it was. I just did not want to be physically demanded to lay down and do whatever needed to happen. And again, had no idea what that was. But this idea that someone could physically control me I had already been disciplined, you know, far too long for 10, you know, 10 years of my life. And the idea of, uh, of somebody and then add to it a man, you know, which to me is very scary because I had mm-hmm. a man, you know, my father was hitting me and abusing me as a child. And then here you have this where like, I'm not sure, like, I don't want to believe that at the time I didn't believe that, you know, a husband would actually spank me or hit me. But then what what would any of that look like? I cared about my own physical safety at that point. Mm -hmm. So even in my journals, I had I constantly wrote and you actually just used it to describe your husband It was the first word you said, um, as a descriptive to your husband, that he is kind. And I have over and over in my journals as a as a young teenager, my first identifier with all men was their kind eyes. Mm -hmm. I needed a man to be kind. I'm lucky in that I had one guy, actually, let me rephrase that because this wasn't the lucky part. Um, I had when I was 17, I had a 33 year old man at our church that was interested in marrying me. And because I had a tumultuous home life, I was maybe this is God, because again, we're always looking for the signs. Yep. So I was like, maybe the, this is what God wants. And so I thought, well, purity culture and everything else, he's doing the right things. He's going to my father, and then he's talking to the pastor and blah, 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 blah. Everybody's all worried about the age difference. And I'm just like, hey, if he's kind, I don't care. Because I know that this is the end of the journey that will then begin with the husband, right? Like, mm-hmm. the only reason where I'm, I'm, 
really breathing and thriving is because I'm meant to marry somebody else and then have his babies and um, homeschool them and Mm -hmm. do everything again, which also felt like a prison sentence to me, the idea of it. But I was like, maybe he's a fun guy. Maybe this is what God wants. And we're just going to get started younger. Might as well get started now because then I won't have to be at home anymore. But thankfully, in a weird way, um, I found a different out and went to headquarters with Bill like a year later. And so <laughs> fell into the arms of a different tragic older man who abused in in those spaces too. But then I meet my husband, the guy who ends up becoming my husband, and the nicest, most generous, mm. kind, thoughtful person. But I still had a lot of fear. I'm like, he could be hiding who he is. I've watched my dad constantly pretend at church that he was this wonderful, kind, jovial person. And then we knew what he was like at home. So I started to get a lot of fear of like, how do I know what this guy is like when I'm not around? I don't, there's no one I can talk to. I don't Mm -hmm. know. But I started to push a little bit. Once we got engaged, I started to push a little bit. And I was like, are you going to be okay if I wear shorts? Are you going to be okay if we don't have children for the first five years? Are you going to be okay if I get a blockbuster card? Are you going to be okay if I wear blue jeans? Are you going to be okay if maybe some days I don't want to go to church? I just, I I would come up with another thought and I would call him up and be like, hey, are you going to be okay if we don't do this? Are you going to be okay if I want to listen to rock music? And at every turn, he's like, yeah, I don't care. It's fine by me. And I'm like, are you really, are you really IBLP and ATI? Because this, <laughs> I don't think I understand what's going on. Why, yeah. why is he okay with this? But yeah. I was like, you know what, Lindsay, I'm just at this point, I'm 22 years old. And I was like, I'm just, I'm going to take this literal leap of personal trust. Yep. And just be like, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust this love I feel for him. I'm going, because there were other options along the way that I never had this depth of trust in. And so I was like, I just need to follow this gut feeling. And he fought for me. I fought to try to get married. So we did. But as when you go from purity culture of no touchy touchy and no, not a lot of information, all of a sudden into it's time to procreate. I can't imagine it because I didn't actually go into my marriage with that intention. I was like, we're not having kids for the first five years. Okay. So in my head, I was like, sex isn't really necessary because you only have to have sex if you're having kids. (laughs) We're not going to have kids. (laughs) It just literally shows how naive I was. I'm like, I don't even really need to do this. Right. Like we can, (laughs) you know, so we're just friends. (laughs) Right. And we're just really good friends. They are roommates, but with things. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best thing I've ever created. Um, But obviously, as time goes by, you're like, you learn and you grow. And thankfully, he wasn't an overbearing husband. He wasn't someone who was demanding my joyful availability, (laughs) which I still, I still can't. Like, I, I hate to laugh about it because I know that there are so many women that are living this existence, that really live this existence of... I will always be joyfully available if he comes home and he's had a bad day. Well, I just better get ready, go in the bedroom and get ready. He just needs a joyfully available moment. We're just this expendable action that happens. Like I don't, Mm -hmm. I can't, it, it, it hurts my brain. I, I can't, I can't fathom it because thankfully I've never had to live it. And I actually, I feel like men in our system of fundamentalism like this, they know they benefit from this. They know that they are taking advantage of their wives. They know Mm -hmm. that this is not normal. They know. They are not idiots. Maybe they are to some degree, but not 
to that level. They know that they are taking advantage of what their wives have been indoctrinated with. Because ladies, you do not have to be joyfully available. And it is a two-party system here. You get you get yeah. you getting it on, you better both be wanting it, you know? Otherwise, it is RAPE. Sorry. Mm-hmm. It just is. I remember I had a friend and she would tell me this throughout the first decade or so of our marriage. Sometimes I don't want to, but he wants to. And so I just lay there and let him do his thing. And then I, I just, I know I can go to bed immediately if that happens versus, you know, me feeling guilty because he's upset. You know, look like men have needs. Women. And how sad is that? How sad is that that you, that you live in a space where selfishness rules your relationship? Gosh, it's so awful. And then I remember deep in my um, 20s. So I I was just trying everything because see the world that I grew up in, there was a formula Mm -hmm. that if you did this, this, and this, it would bring blessing and it would bring friends and it would bring finances. It would bring favor. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was trying everything and there was this woman, Courtney Joseph, she's in Ohio. I don't know if she's still honestly there, but um, she had a YouTube channel called Women Living Well. And it was a YouTube channel and she was a homeschool, like very fundamental homeschool mom. Um, She had a husband, she had the house, she had the money, the cars, the everything. And she was such an interesting person. Like people were so fixated on her that Rachel Ray had her on her show. And I remember this because Rachel Ray was like, okay, so let me get this straight. Your husband, he goes to work and, you know, they're talking about his job and she's like, yep. And then when he comes home, I make sure that, you know, there's always some sort of candle burning. I make sure that I've got a hot meal on the table. The house is perfectly clean and I've got my hair and my makeup done because he does not need to come home to somebody who is not presenting themselves well. And, you know, he does everything for me. He, he provides the house and my nice car and you know what? So, so yeah, I, I've never turned him down. I've never, ever turned him down. Even if I'm in the mood, not in the mood, she's like, you, you'd be surprised how fast you get in the mood. I just, I never turn him down. And without skipping a beat for an audience member, honey, that sounds like prostitution. <sighs> like he provides this as long as you provide this. Right. And that exchange, it's transactional. It's a hundred percent transactional. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I continued to follow her, her ideology. Cause, cause again, I was so desperate for community and, for affirmation that I was on the right path with God, that I was doing the right thing, that I was being the Proverbs 31 woman. And um, ultimately that, that was a, that did not work out well for me. Um, Cause it's just not who I am. No, but, <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm no, definitely not a Proverbs 31 mm-hmm. ru- woman either. But it, <laughs> My worth is far above rubies, but that's yeah, about exactly. where it all falls off. <laughs> Yeah. So I think that takes us into. um... Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Thank you to those that have reached out with your support, whether you have left a review. If you haven't left a review, this would be a really, really good time to leave a review. Read every single one of them. So thank you. And for those that are subscribers to my Patreon, thank you. It means so much. One of the new features that I am adding for my paid Patreon subscribers is the chat feature. And this is just a way that we can all continue this conversation that we're having in the podcast. And if you are not a paid subscriber, unfortunately, the chat feature won't be available to you. But you can be a free subscriber and you'll just get the weekly newsletters. Y'all are amazing. And I honestly could not do this podcast without the support that I receive from each one of you. So thank you so much. I want to say, I do want to say that the Val, like, as far as relationships and stuff are, are, you know, you were talking about marriage and how long we've lasted and been able to have good relationships. I think it does boil down to the fact that it's not a transactional relationship. And fundamentalists, a lot of Christians do believe that marriage is transactional, that it is about the patriarchal structure, the authoritarian structure. So man, then woman, then children. And I've never, first of all, I don't use umbrellas to talk about my relationship with my husband. We are partners. We stand along with each other. We stand alongside of each other. We lift each other up. Um, I love how Brene I recently saw a video where she was saying that she and her husband will come to each other with percentages. Oh, of like, yep. what, do, yep. what, do you, what, where are you at today? And she's like, you know what, I'm only at a 30. And he's like, that's okay, I can pull the 70 today. And then they sit down like, hey, what's going on for you? What's got you at 30? And then she's like, there are days where I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm running at 90. How are you? And they're like, I'm like a 10, maybe 5%. It's like, it's really bad. Okay, well, what can I do? I, I can carry the load today. That is a relationship. Yep. Not this authoritarian uh, dictatorship. And I definitely lived in a, in a home that was a dictatorship. You know, yeah. whatever dad said went, then it would trickle through mom who might have a shitty attitude about it or mumble about it, which doesn't help the kids toe the line. But we would just do our darndest to try to be perfect always. And I'm not saying that we can't have fun nights and be presentable for each other, but I'm sorry. Like why did, why is it always on us as the women to be the bright, shiny object? Usually in these relationships too, I always find it fascinating and I'm not trying to shame, but the men let it go and run South on their appearance pretty fast. And then the women are over here looking like little Barbie dolls and, you know, trying to be the little perfect Stepford wife. Meanwhile, the husbands are just greasy and gross. And it's like, well, yeah, you know why? Because you have to, you don't have to do anything for yourself. The Bible doesn't say be joyfully available, although I don't think the Bible ever says be joyfully available with sex for your husband. Um, I think those words have been twisted and put in the mouths of, you know come out of the mouths of very dastardly people. But, um, you know, if if you really are going to go that direction, it's tit for tat, in my, my uh, opinion. You know, boy, men, it's about time you, like, maybe maybe lose, lose some pounds and clean yourself up, too, because yeah. your wife is literally trying to be the most perfect thing for you. And that's her whole life exists around that thought every day. It is so unhealthy. So I'm yeah. really grateful, too, for myself and for you that, like, we have husbands that are kind, 
that understands when we open the door and we don't have any makeup on or hell, we don't answer the door. You know what I mean? They they just come in from the the long day and they search the house for us. Where are we at? Oh, we might be, you know, doing some errands or cleaning the pool or doing, like, I don't know, just like crazy things. We we are a partnership. It does not need to be labor or the, the point doesn't need to be labored much longer, but just, you know, when you are deconstructing or getting out of or untangling your, your faith, you start to realize that it also means you have to kind of untangle your relationships too. And I'm just so glad that I didn't have to do that with my husband, that Mm -hmm. as we left, we left together. And as we went down this journey with the, with, with me being a lot more verbal about it was a cult and it was these things, he agrees with me, but he doesn't have to be on a big platform and I'm not desiring him to, you know, like we're, we're where we are at. And like you said, that support system of, you know, we come alongside each other and I give him strength in the spaces that he needs it. And he does the same for me. And that to me is a far healthier system. And it's a healthy way for your kids to see a parent system working too as these like coexisting units that support each other all the time. Yeah. For, for Sean and I, he is more, he wasn't brought up inside of this. Mm -hmm. Um, But we, we were living inside of, of fundamentalism for sure. When we started dating and then um, like we, we had a whole accountability contract accountability mm. partners, mm-hmm. all of that. Um, we certainly trauma bonded because we got married so young. Yeah. And coming out of that, having a lot of really tough conversations. Hey, this is why we got married. Yeah. What does love mean to you? What does love mean for me? What is that? Having those really vulnerable hard, very hard conversations of, yeah, now we're fully out. We might never go back to any, any type of, of church or religion or anything like that. Like, but what does it look like? Cause see, for us, we were told for years for me, I was told forever, but for him, we were told for years, if you leave, it will end in divorce. Mm -hmm. That's what happens to marriages. So how do we redefine our marriage when the foundation is no longer what it was originally. Because the foundation, we were always told on Christ, the solid rock I stand, no other Mm -hmm. ground is sinking sand, right? So like we were told to build our foundation on Christ and now it's no longer on Christ because we realized that Christ was actually the sinking sand. Yeah, exactly. Right? So now (laughs) here we are. How do we define this? And we are recognizing that marriage is something that you have to give permission for it to be redefined all mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. yeah. because it's it's fluid. And I now see divorce differently, whereas it used to be like, oh, that's the worst thing you can do ever. Now it's yep. like, oh, well, like. Didn't work out. Didn't move work on. Out. Okay. Yeah. Why torture move, yourself? Why torture each other? Move yeah. on. There's yeah. someone else. I'm sure there will be. Yeah. And like, I think that that so makes easy. it that much more intentional for yeah. us. When yeah. you when you remove that as like the worst thing that could ever happen, like the biggest, most unforgivable, unforgivable sin, it's just like, okay, but I'm I'm choosing you. 
because I now realize that I have choices. That wasn't a choice to me for me before. And this wasn't a choice. And this wasn't a choice. Like now I'm actively choosing you. And yeah, so we're, we're learning what love is and how I, I am. He had a, he has a great perspective and a great outlook on what love is for him and how he defines that. But I've had to redefine what that means because for me, love was synonymous with obedience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It wasn't love. Like it's how, how I've come to understand it now. Let's talk J Doug. Yeah. (laughs) Bring it. (laughs) Okay. You mentioned this book. I had it. I tried my hardest to, I have it on audible uh, which actually just makes it more assaultive to my brain <laughs> because you have to hear it. Um, yeah. And I tried really hard. So the first day it, when it came out, I listened to the first three or four chapters and I was uh, just angrily pacing back and forth and back and forth in my room. I was so mad. I took down notes. I was texting, but like I was just enraged yeah. at, at her because this community that I am a part of, the deconstruction community, um, the trauma community, the healing community, like we we work so hard to move forward in the best way that we can. And when somebody that has a platform is so assaultive with their words towards what we are doing, it it's so frustrating because she has the ability to have the space for us and to have that grace for us without have, without agree. She didn't have to agree with us, mm-hmm. but she does not do that. And so I felt so enraged by those first chapters. And then I don't know how we got on the subject, you and I, but we did. And you're like, Oh, the last three, like, just do me a favor <laughs> to read the last three. And I said, fine, I will. Um, and begrudgingly, you went and did your homework. Begrudgingly, I did. <laughs> and it was within, I don't like two minutes, not even that. Cause like, you're like, start with this chapter as soon as she, she 30 seconds in, I, I now know why you were enraged. <laughs> so I was enraged with the first three or four. You're enraged. I mean, you're probably enraged with the whole thing, but the last few chapters are an assault on who you are and the story that you have. Mm-hmm. And it's not fair. Um, she makes fun. She ta- it, it immediately... For those of you that haven't read it, the last, the third to the last chapter, it immediately drops you into a scene where her and her sisters are inside of a store and one of them puts on a blonde wig. I don't know if it's her. One of them puts on a blonde wig and says, what am I? And they are mimicking and making fun of um, the Gothard girls. Now that sent me, so not only that, but like it put me in a space and I, I, was texting with you and just saying, I'm angry at this because yeah, she's making fun of them. And it highlights the fact that you were branded much like those that were the true love weights purity ring by Dobson. There's a branding that we went through 
that, I mean, yours is so specific. The true love waits is so like, it's just, we were never our own. And that mm-hmm. struck with me. Like that was the parallel that I felt like I could draw between us, like why it pissed me off. And it pissed you off because you, she knew like, how dare she? I, I can, Oh, <laughs> I, I, first of all, I appreciate that you read those chapters. I knew they were going to be rough for you to read knowing each other the way that we do now. Um, but I, first of all, I was on a plane. I was having my first time experience flying like a full first class experience. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be so great. Why the heck I turned it? Because I also listened to the audiobook. Why the hell I turned that on while I was sitting in this wonderful three hours of one of the most best, fabulous flights I've ever had in my life. And the second I realized that she was mocking, because that's what I thought at first. I was like, she is mocking the Gothard girls. Who wants to? No one wants to be that. I didn't sign up for that. Is she, and I know that I'm one of many, but she's literally making fun of me. Mm-hmm. Her sisters are literally standing in a, in a costume shop with a Halloween wig on and they are mocking my life. They are mocking my experience of abuse with Bill. And I don't know that they realize, I know they don't truly understand what they're doing in this moment, but even just the fact that that is the storyline she wanted to use and chose to use to discuss Bill's, you know, bad behaviors, predatory behaviors, sexual abuse and assault behaviors. How dare she? Yeah, and then, it- and also, like, I can only speak for myself. I do not know for the other survivors the Gothard girls survivors, the Gothard girls in the lawsuit. I don't know if she's ever spoken to any of them. She certainly has never spoken to me to actually understand what a Gothard girl endured. This is not a badge of honor. This is not a badge that I carry with pride. This is a term that was put on all of us because Bill Gothard had a problem. He mm-hmm. had a problem and with predatory behavior and preyed upon young, naive, broken, innocent young ladies. And you want to mock us in a Halloween store. I just, yeah. I, I couldn't. I stopped, I stopped the tape. I was like, I don't even, <laughs> tape, how old am I? I stopped the audiobook and was just like, I I can't, I can't believe this. I don't even know this person. I don't even know Ginger. And my entire understanding, like, as soon as I learned about the Duggars and who they were, I have always given very, very large amounts of space for these kids. They've all been victims. They have all been abused in various forms. I know that they can't seem to label their abuses They can't seem to label that this was a cult. They can't seem to label anything negatively about their experiences. And it breaks my heart because it shows just how controlled and conditioned they still are and also living in a lot of fear. I do not, Mm -hmm. I do not make fun of that. I do not say it lightly and I don't say it as an excuse. It's simply fact. So I have given all of the space in the world 
to these kids. And I don't, even in my TikToks or when I'm, even in my TikToks and when I'm live and people come into my lives and like, oh, tell us all about the dogger, the Duggars because we've been on Shiny Happy People. And so they just assume like I have this relationship with them. And I'm like, they're not for sale. They're not for conversation in it, when it comes to me. I am not going to continue to exploit the Duggar children like TLC did and so many others have as their parents, Bill Gothard, etc. They don't need this exploitation. But <laughs> all of that said, Ginger decides to speak out in her, her theological memoir and share her viewpoint on Gothard Girls. And I think that makes it fair game for me to still have space for her because the facts have not changed. She is still a victim. She was still right. abused. She still lives in fear. She still is under being controlled and indoctrinated. And you can't tell me any different because it's very obvious in, in that book that she is still conditioned and controlled. Um, but she speaks with such an authority in the way that she, she comes at. Like, I felt mm -hmm. like she was coming at me coming at yeah. us Gothard girls and coming at anybody who deconstructed their faith that we didn't do it right. And I just, I would, I would put this out there. I know she, she probably will never listen to this. I hope maybe she does someday, but like Ginger, I'm, I am free to have conversation with you. Like if you ever want to reach out and talk and hear from my side, what it was like to be a Gothard girl, you can do the research by talking to us and it might inform you a little bit more than how uninformed you are at this point because what you shared in that book but really does show that you are uninformed on what really happened with all of us it's so tough because it's like i want people to hear it, but i don't want people to <laughs> to hear it um and i say that because she cites his accomplishments yeah as if she were to say something negative about him it would set off a chain of events in her life that she is not yet willing to reconcile with. She's not willing to go down that road because if she says, wow, he's a horrible abusive man that caused this and this and this in my life, then that chasm that is her cognitive dissonance starts to slowly close. And there are people that are just not ready for that. Um, well, you then would have to acknowledge the own that that this man that her whole family looked up to was not pure in heart, and then yeah. they were indoctrinated by materials that were harming others, and then they were in a situation where they were in a family with their own abuser, and then you have to accept that too. And if you're accepting all of that, then that means you have to have compassion for the Gothard girls because they were abused and victims. And you have to then identify that you two, you were as well. And where does that put you when you're standing on a firm footing that everything is right? There's nothing to see here. It's all been great. And, you know, maybe Bill was a little bit off, you know, cult-like as she calls it. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, sweetheart, it, like, I don't know what professional you're looking for at this point to call it a cult but there are so many people out here that are calling it a cult and you know what a cult is because because with iblp and ati we call a lot of different belief systems cults and we're not what professional were we looking for at that time we were looking mm -hmm. to bill gothard so you know steve hassan i think is is one of the most you know uh known cult experts 
And he has an itemized list, the bite model that can help Mm -hmm. you walk through to see if something is a cult. And it doesn't just mean religious cults. It can be political cults. It can be friend cults. It can be all kinds of different. There are a variety of cults. And -hmm. you can start ticking boxes to see just how bad off a certain um, organization or ministry or political view or something like that, these different groups can be. So, again, when she says even in other interviews that she's done that I have, you know, tortured myself with listening to um, because I keep holding out hope. It's one it's one of the worst things about me, actually, is I hope too big. I hope too hard. Um, I, it's what kept me, I think with, um, in the relationships with my parents for far too long because that was so toxic, but I hoped and hoped that if I just, I don't know if I said enough, if I said the right thing, if I found the right wording in the right arrangement that somehow it would connect with them. And I think with all the J Dugs, I keep hoping that at some point somebody's going to say something effective enough, but when it comes to indoctrination, nothing will be effective until that person is broken down enough or curious enough and ready of their own right. There is nothing that any of us will really be able to do or say except to potentially be there for them when they finally do let down their guards and they do start asking questions. Um, I'm not saying that we all have to be readily available, (laughs) joyfully available to them, um, because I think for some, like for my parents and their abusive behaviors, I'm not going to be here to catch you when you crumble and and the reality bites you. You're going to have to do your own hard work. But for kids in abusive systems, again, Ginger and the J-Dugs, I would be there to help point them to the right people. I can't carry them on my shoulders, but I can say, look, I know it's hard, honey, but like, here are some helpful resources that you guys can look at that can help you and other people that I have looked to and been able to learn from and grow from and get yourself into therapy, period, bottom line. I think some people get this idea, especially in Christian circles, that we're just like, oh, my God, I can't wait for her to be a non-Christian. I can't wait for her to turn away from her faith. That is not what this is about. Like I said, I, I respect anybody who holds faith. Like, if you want to be a Christian, you have that right to be a Christian. My thing is just like, don't stop asking questions. And when people try to stop you from asking questions, you are not in the right parts of faith. Yep. You should always be able to ask questions. You should always be able to push back. We've been told that this is a rebellious behavior and that you're not towing the line and you need to submit to God. No, that is not how it is supposed to work. And we have just been so damaged by that. So I think you and I see this as like, oh, we thought she was getting there. We thought she was really going to become free from all of the oppressive, domineering Jesus (laughs) and be able to find herself into a a world of faith where there is grace, where there is peace, where there is kindness and embracing all walks of life and all different types of people. And instead in this book, she proves that she has not become free and definitely not indeed because the, the way that she comes at all of us, you included, for walking away from your faith, the way that she comes at all of us saying that we will never have peace unless we come back to Jesus. Like it has to be with Jesus or according to Ginger, it is not peace. That is gaslighting 
And it is exactly what Bill Gothard did to us by telling us we are not perfect. We are not in line with God unless we do exactly what he says we should do. I'm not telling Ginger to leave God. I'm not out here telling Ginger, you can only do it one way for me to know that you are free. But girl, all of my prickles are up because you are not free of a mindset if you have no compassion and you have Mm -hmm. no space for other people to take a journey. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's still out there. And I didn't need to have a salacious book that no, that's not it at all. I, um, well, she titled it becoming free indeed. That's why I, that's why I listened. I was like, Oh, I cannot mm-hmm. wait. I can't wait to see like, how did she break down some of Bill's stuff, you know, and how that's what I thought it would be. You know, how did she break down some of the fundamentalism? And instead, it was just, here's how I'm just going to stick with all of it, um, except wearing pants and having less mm-hmm. kids. And, um, but it, it, and then again, it came for people in multiple chapters. And I was like, yeah, this is not cute. This ain't a cute look right now, honey. Yeah. Speaking of cute look, though. <laughs> I'm looking adorable. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so are you. <laughs> um, it's too bad the podcast go... listeners can't see how glorious we look. I know. We look, we look incredible. Fab. Um, <laughs> we are joyfully people. available for each other. <laughs> we are... Uh, <laughs> we're something we're something that's what that's what this is um (laughs) you're gonna go okay first off you're gonna be on a plane to milan yes like you do fashion week i do i do and i love it but the juxtaposition (laughs) yeah it's pretty it's pretty major Um, (laughs) so we get carried away when we talk Mm -hmm. but i you you escape and first off uh, here's the thing I call it escape. Sure. And I I changed that language because I met somebody um, on TikTok. I was, uh, they brought me into a live and they are former Amish. Mm-hmm. And I said, I walked away and she, and they said, stop. You didn't walk away from anything. You didn't wake up one day and casually decide that this wasn't your thing anymore. Mm. You escaped because what you were in, they hunt you. Mm. They harass you. They intimidate you. You lost your friends, your family, your safety net, your social sphere. Mm -hmm. You lost everything. You didn't walk away. That's an escape. Mm. And I, call it that now. And now that I see that, I realize I, I did, because if I stayed any longer, I hated myself. Mm-hmm. I really hated myself. And, and it was dangerous where I was at in a mental health wise, emotionally, psychologically, everything was so dangerous. So we didn't walk away. We escaped. Yeah. Um, and you went into the fashion world. So Um, are you, what what do they say out of the fryer into the frying pan or out of the oven into the fryer? I forget what I don't even know. what I can't even even remember what it is. Just the industry itself is such a tough place. So I went from one 
trauma, like difficult trauma into like just a whole different sector of crazy and culty Mm -hmm. behavior to a degree sometimes as well in fashion. Everybody's willing to sacrifice everything about themselves, those little voices, the gut instinct, all the stuff in order to serve fashion. Um, it's very interesting to watch, but, um, Oh yeah. One high demand to another high demand and Mm -hmm. and superficial across the board for all of it. Bill Dobson fashion, (laughs) fashion is just way prettier than those two ugly dudes. But (laughs) (laughs) like, I trust when I got into just doing makeup and hair, I, I lived in the Midwest at the time. I, had actually started out modeling first. That's what got me into the industry. And I know that, again, that is also quite a jump. But th- this this happens when when young people, middle-aged people, even older people, like this happens, I think, when anybody leaves a long stint in a high control group. They're going to be sloppy for a while. They're going to do some crazy things. Um mm-hmm. And of course, if you're if you're in the public eye, they just can't wait for the crazy to happen. They want to see the meltdowns. They want to be able to whisper behind your back. They want to know that they're mm-hmm. better than you are because somehow they're holding it together. But I'll tell you, your day's yep. coming. Like <laughs> trauma comes for all people. But when you do start to really get out of this, I know for me, I was like, I just want to do everything everywhere all at once. I <laughs> I don't know how this is going to look, but I just want to do and explore and be. And I felt so awkward in my own skin. And yet I'm like, I'm going to try to model. Um, I was crazy, but I did for a few years. And then it led me into it just I stumbled into doing makeup. It was not something that I'm like, I want to be a makeup artist someday, especially with the way I was raised. Are you kidding me? It wasn't on the radar. But someone hired me to do makeup for somebody one day. And they were like, I think you, you do your own makeup really nice. I think you'd be great at it. And I'm like, okay. So I really have Dan Bishop to thank for hiring me, <laughs> thinking that I was not just a nice model. I was also good at makeup because that that day, that one, that very first photo shoot where I did makeup, I was like, oh, yeah, I want to do this for the rest of my life because there's no way I'm going to be a size two and a size four for the rest of my life either. Like, come on, I'm not that dumb. Um, and I don't love working out all the time. <laughs> so yep. bonus. Um, but yeah, I literally got started in Milwaukee doing hair, doing makeup, and then got into doing hair and just started realizing that if I paid attention to things, which I was obviously very good at given my upbringing, because we didn't really have an education to stand on, we had to just, you know, dive in and try to figure things out all the time. And I realized like, wow, I'm, I'm a good problem solver. I'm very, I pay attention to every little thing. Um, I'm a perfectionist. I will never be able to get rid of that part of myself. And I was like, these play well in the makeup industry. And so I went from, mm-hmm. I did brides for a while and I hated it because they wanted to control me. And I'm like, no, 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 mm-hmm. you're hiring me as a professional. I'm coming in as a professional. Mm-hmm. You don't get to tell me what to do. Bye-bye. Um, so I still do weddings now, but I charge a whole lot more to be put through the nightmare of of doing one. But um, yep. anyway, got into fashion and decided, I was like, I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to move to New York City because at this point in my life, I think I'd been out of the cult for 10 years. And I thought to myself, the one thing I want to always stand by is no regrets. Like mm-hmm. that, that has always been sort of my own personal mantra, no regrets. Will I regret doing it or will I regret not doing it? And I got to that crossroads in my life where I'm like, I'm hitting 30. Uh, if I don't do this, 
will I regret that I didn't go to New York or will I regret that I did? As an artist, there's no way I could regret doing it. Um, it only holds benefits if you put in the time. So I did. I up and moved to New York. Um, within a year, my husband and I were able to sell our house. And again, talk about a support system. He was so willing to do so, so much for me and sacrifice so much at that time. Yeah. Um, yep. And he ended up becoming a, a stay-at-home husband. Like He works from home. And still now, uh, what, what are we, like 12 or 13 years down the road, he still works from home um, and loves it. Um, so you're welcome, honey. But uh <laughs> So then in New York, like I was treated horribly um, on just about every level you can possibly think of. And, you know, I'm sure everybody's going like, well, I wonder why she seems so confident. Yeah, well, I wasn't back then. I was still a bit of a sheltered ATX, ATI, IBLP kid where I thought that being kind and smiling and engaging was the thing. And I literally had photographers tell me to stop smiling. Why are you smiling like that? You're weirding me out. Stop smiling. And then one asked me, like, why are you so happy all the time? Like, it was a cur- like, how dare you? Why are you happy all the time? And I'm like, God, I'm just really excited mm-hmm. to be here. Yeah, well, it's weird. And I started realizing that my overzealous excitement was a huge red flag to people in New York. Like, girl, you strange. So I was like, well, I'm not, I don't want to lose my joy. I don't want to lose my kindness. But I started to realize that what was happening is that I was walking through life with this, these big doe eyes of kind of naivety that I had no grit to me. I had no, um, (laughs) what it like, it's a weird word to use because it's very Christian-y, but like conviction of myself. I didn't yeah. have any true understanding of me. I was living in an unidentifiable Lindsay space. I didn't know who the hell I was. I just knew that I wanted to not be all the stuff in the past. And I wanted to be accepted by this group of people. So in a way, my mind was going, my mind was still cultish. And they like, I wanted them mm-hmm. to accept me. How come I can't be accepted here? Why I can't afford to wear Prada and Dior every day. But like some people just seem to be sacrificing every single coin they make to wear all these designers. And I'm like, I don't want to do that with my life. I don't. So if I don't do that, and I don't toe the line and look exactly like them, then I won't get the jobs I want. And that really rubbed me wrong. I was just like, oh my gosh, this fit. Like, I couldn't put it together until more recently with therapy, where I'm like, I was trying to move into more of a culty thing again. I wanted to follow people. I wanted, mm-hmm. I had people I looked up to, and I, I craved their validation and what I was doing. And I didn't get it very often, um, validation from others. And so, though it pissed me off at the time and made me begrudge a lot of things. I also look back now going, it's probably really damn healthy that I didn't get that validation from people because I learned to validate myself, come into my own strength of like, I know I'm good at what I do, but I've also put in the mother fricking time. I have assisted yep. for years and years. I, again, I was in the pressure cooker of New York City for 10 years. It changes you. New York changed me. I can make choices now. <laughs> which is really hard for fundy kids. And if we hearken back to Ginger's book, in the very beginning of her book, she talks about how she can't make choices. Choices. That was the biggest thing for me. Another where I was like, again, you're not free, honey. You're becoming, but that is not freedom. Freedom, freedom. I would not even say, even though I could have said technically I was free, even when I moved to New York, because it had been 10 years. 
oh, honey, I was not free until about like maybe 18 years away from IBLP when I realized that I don't hearken and tether back to all of this stuff all the time. Uh, But yeah, fashion, I wanted to travel when I was a kid. Um, I thought being a missionary, it was either going to be to like uh, Russia or Taiwan or Australia or like pretty much it was... (laughs) everywhere Bill's ministry was going, because I knew that's the only way that that, um, my parents would let me potentially be uh, able to go to different countries. And as I got out of all of that, I mean, when I was when I was still in ATI with Bill, we went to Romania for a couple of weeks. And I was just elated. I loved every second of being in that country. Um, Did not like what he was trying to do in the country, but was like, well, but I'm here. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I started really traveling with Fashion Week that I started realizing I w- it wasn't anything about being a minister to the world and a, and a missionary. I just wanted to see the world. And that was the mm-hmm. only way that I would ever get to do that. So here I was, you know, jet setting around doing photo shoots in other countries. And I was just like, this, this, this is what I was born for. This is what I love doing so, so much um, to explore this amazing, awesome planet and meet so many incredible people and not have it be about my religion getting forced down someone else's throat in a country where I have no business being trying to tear down their fundamentals in their belief systems. How dare I? Who do I think I am trying to tell people that their faith isn't correct? It's not, I don't, None of us should ever feel that we have the right to do something like that. So anyway, I yeah. love traveling. I've I've been at this job, I guess. Um, I've had this career for about 15 years now. I love every second of it. I I will say that with therapy and the documentary, I'm trying to be I'm trying to have the same viewpoints of life in the beauty and fashion industry as I feel with the cult and religion that no one should do harm, that no one should be taking advantage of others. Um, There are some things going on right now where artists are taking advantage of other artists because of their naivety. And I'm just like, you know what, if I can speak out against Bill Gothard, why can I not speak out against these other bad actors in the world? Like if we have Mm -hmm. the platform and we see it, why are we so afraid to say it? And I know we're afraid yep. because these people have lots of money or they have platform. And it's just like, I, I know. But you know what? If we if we continue to allow them to tout their wares and allow our fear to hold us silent, we become complicit. And I've said that so many yeah. different times. And then I'm like, oh, crap. If I don't say anything about these people taking advantage of other artists, I am complicit. I do believe it. We have to fight. We have to use our voices, not just with religion, but with everything that is that is unfair and unjust. Yeah. And your your yeah. moral compass, your gut instinct will tell you what that is. You don't always need other people to tell you. Is it okay to hurt other people? No. It, are you hurting mm-hmm. other people if you don't let, let uh, we'll get sticky here, if you don't let uh, young women who have been molested get uh, an abortion? Are we complicit if we continue to allow that to happen? Is that harm to someone? Yes, it could be great harm. And, you know, I know everybody's going to come at me because it's like, well, but it's a child. There's a living person that needs to make a choice for themselves. 
These choices are never easy. They are always difficult. It just comes down to we have to be able to speak out. And I love my career. I've I've had to make some very uncomfortable stand-ups for myself lately. Of This isn't what I was told that this job would be. I was misguided with this. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to do one more makeup and then I'm going to leave. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I do, why say that I shouldn't be subjected to Bill or I shouldn't be subjected to people taking advantage of me and then I allow it in my job? Like it's, yep. it's the same. And look, I, I'm not brave every day. I'm not, I still live with fear. I have a lot of anxiety. I have the necklace that I wore in Shiny Happy People. A lot of people thought that it was a vibrator and it was actually a breathing tool for anxiety. And it helps me to have a slower exhale when I start to get very panicked about things. And thankfully, I don't deal with that quite as much anymore. But the necklace serves a reminder that is always with me that if I need it, I have it. But also that when I don't reach for it, I'm strong on my own. And that also is my own personal validation. I don't need people telling me so much anymore because I have an autonomy that I've been able to build in myself, which is also why, Ginger, when we deconstruct, we tear the house down and we rebuild it with better modalities and we build it with safer people and we surround ourselves with actual truth. We don't just tear the house down and leave it barren in a lot to grow weeds, as she loves to describe. And I think that for those who choose to disentangle, quote unquote, my only concern with that is that when you disentangle, you're still holding on to what you've untangled. Like I always think of disentangling as like necklaces. It's the only thing I will ever spend time mm-hmm. disentangling. If it's a, a rope or a thread or a string, I'll throw it out and buy a new one. I don't have time for that. Um, but if yep. it's my necklaces, yes, I will tediously with a safety pin, try to pick and poke and <laughs> untangle them. But when you untangle them, you then put them back on and you wear them. So if you're disentangling from fundamentalism, but then you're putting the necklaces right back on yourself, you are still bearing the weight of the oppressive thought processes that held you entangled right. in the first place. So again, stay in your faith. I understand that. I am not I am not harboring I'm not trying to demand that everybody become agnostic or an atheist or anything like that. But if you put if you disentangle and you put them right back on yourself and you ask no questions, you haven't actually shifted your narrative at all. So I think that people need to consider what disentangling actually means because if you disentangle, it means you're starting to wake up. And you don't go right back to the same people, the same types of people that perpetuate abuse, small-mindedness, selfishness, pain on others, and denying other people's their freedoms and their joys in this life. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. There was um, something that you had said just with abuse in the industry that Mm -hmm. you're in. And I was a photographer for nearly a decade. And I started getting into um, like advertising Mm -hmm. photography. So I would be hired by a marketing company to go and do like website shots for offices. And it was my first gig. And I, prior to this and still like currently during this time, I was still doing portraiture and then wedding photography. So 
this wasn't like my first time ever doing something. It's just like I was going to go to a to an office. And I arrived there and the doctor was like, oh, you're going to do this and this and this and this and this. And then there's this. And I also want this. And then you're doing... And I, I got on the phone with the marketing firm and I was like, this is what they want me to do. This is what you contracted mm-hmm. me to do. I'm not going to do something that is outside of my right. contract. And I remember having a really awkward conversation with the doctor who, by the way, was a uh, very staunch evangelical and male and felt that he had every right to come in and invade Mm -hmm. my space and tell me what I'm doing. And I had to remind him, you did not hire me. You hired the marketing firm that hired Mm -hmm. me. So you miscommunicated what you wanted. I'm here to do my job. And my job contractually is this. If you want something different, then you're going to have to call them and I will have to come back. And there's going to have to be some renegotiating and you will be paying me more money. That's how this works. But I was not asked to come back. I was, I, that was the only thing that I did with them and with the marketing agency, but Oh, it felt so good. Oh, when you good. can speak up like that. Yeah. And yep. you set up a boundary and it yep. and it supersedes just your religious space. Do you know what I mean? Like it's one thing to set yep. boundaries there and with family mm-hmm. and things like that that are pushing your boundaries of faith and whatnot. But when you, yeah, when you bring it into the workspace and you realize, wait a minute, this is actually wrong what's happening right now. And I'm going to call it out for yep. how I see it. It's, it feels amazing. And if I get, uh, if I never get, (laughs) I say this all the time to myself, I'm like, if I never get hired from these people again, thank goodness, because they're toxic. Money, when you're a freelancer, money's kind of everything. And you take every job that comes your Mm -hmm. way because you need to, you don't know where your next bread and butter job's going to come from. Um, And so a lot of times it can create a bit of a frenzy or a panic about what kind of jobs you say yes to. But I have turned down a lot of jobs in the last few years, and I thank therapy for it. Um, But I'm also more sane for it because I'm, I'm advocating for myself that again, it just goes beyond, I think it shows how deeply effective therapy was because it has gone yep. beyond the borders of just my faith and indoctrination and the abuse of my upbringing. And it's now becoming a whole part of me where I feel like I can ask questions. I advocate for myself. Um, I'm, I'm also not with an agency right now. Um, I have been in the past. And I st- started realizing about five years ago that agencies are really abusive. And that is not something that people say in my industry. We don't open up and say they're abusive. They take advantage of us. They take all these percentages away from mm-hmm. us um, in our money. Like if people knew how much money I could make and then don't because of agencies getting in the way and the percentages that they take and now how little they tend to do. I'm not, they're not all useless. There are some that are still really good, but they're hard. They're harder to get into. The market is far more saturated with artists. And I just said, you know what? I am happy advocating for myself. Not everybody, not every artist wants to, but I was like, you know, I like this new voice of mine. I like bossy pants, Lindsay. Yeah. I, I will be the controller of my destiny at this point. And I will choose to believe in myself, follow my gut instinct and say no when no is appropriate and call people out when their behavior is bad. 
when it could harm others, when yeah. it's not mentally safe. Like it just, ha- it has to start somewhere. And it, it started with, I think me too. And it started, it's kind of moved through to where not just women, but people in general are feeling a little bit more bold yes. where they're like, they can put their foot down and say, no, not today. You don't get to do this today. But then you have the ones that get a little too far and then they become Karens. So you have to be very careful with the boundaries <laughs> of like, what is having a voice and yeah. advocating for yourself and then just becoming an all out like banshee who just thinks they can scream and yell at anything that just doesn't make them happy in life. Like there is obviously a balance. Well, and that's where therapy comes in, like starting to recognize, Oh, I might be taking this too far. When you're healing, when you're going through therapy, there are going to be times where you absolutely take it too far because that inner child is screaming and you take on that voice rather than you, you take on the voice of that child versus the adult. Oh, yeah. um, she has to come out. Couple yeah, questions. Yeah. I was going to say, she has to come out. Yeah. I, I had a few times where she I is. had had moments where I was just like enragedly, heartbrokenly upset over something that a friend would do. And thankfully, I was with another friend who was like, you are so perceiving this wrong. And I'm like, but this is where my emotions are right now. And I've never been allowed to let my emotions go apeshit. And I'm living in this feeling. Like I want to feel this because I never got to be angry at someone who did wrong by me, you know? And so Mm -hmm. it was a very sloppy time, but I'm so glad I had um, my dear friend, Daniel Klingler. I'm so glad I had him in my life because he was my voice of reason and my cooler. Like he would just be like, baby, I know you're feeling your feelings and they're really big, but like, we just got to simmer down right now. It is not as big as you're making it, but that's what therapy will do for a certain amount of time. It reignites and awakens feelings that you weren't, you always suppressed. And so when you start to allow them to come out, it is very messy. So if you do go through therapy, I don't say this to scare anybody, but be aware of it. And also just like, let your friends know you're going through therapy. There is, come on, you guys, this is not the fifties. There's no weird, bizarre stigma that you're going through therapy. If anything, people celebrate it far more now than they look down upon it. If people are looking down on it, it's probably a certain generation, but there is something so amazing when you go through therapy. But when people know, they know to give you a little bit of a wider space to give you a little bit more acceptance and, and understanding and nurturing. And I needed a lot of nurturing during those therapy years. Yeah. It's a lot and it's okay if you go through it and you take Mm -hmm. a bit of a break and then you come back to it and you take a bit of a break. And sometimes it takes, you know, several different therapists. Sometimes you fire people. I have fired (laughs) therapists because they were bad for me and that's okay. It's got to feel right. Yeah. Last few questions. It does. I'm curious what your questions are. What's your favorite book? What is my favorite book? Um, Clearly Becoming. (laughs) Free and That'll be my book. Becoming. (laughs) Um, Became. (laughs) Um, No, actually, my favorite book. um, Oh, I have so many. But can I tell you my favorite, like one of my first ever favorite books? Because I was a young teen and this was probably contraband, this book. Um, Phantom of the Opera by Gaston LaRue. Ooh. The original Phantom of the Opera. Well done. Just love. Um, one of my other favorite books is um, Brene Brown's Journey of the Heart or Atlas of the Heart. Sorry. Sorry, Brene. Oh, I have that. Yeah. Beautiful. Atlas of the Heart is an absolute uh, guidebook to my soul. And I love her. She has opened up my vocabulary 
greatly. That's because Brene Brown is like, she's the big sister, the aunt, the mom, mm-hmm. like she's everything. She's a vocabulary um, wizard. Oh, she's just, she's phenomenal. <laughs> um, she set the standard for social workers, which I, mm. that's a difficult field now. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, one of the other, a more recent book that I read that absolutely, I don't think I've ever read a book so fast and also cried through most of it. <laughs> and that is educated by Tara Westover. Oh my gosh. I knew you were going to say, as soon as you say, I knew you were going to say that. I read that in 36 hours. I yeah, like just- I, I was on vacation because I do this to myself. Oh my gosh. I related to so much of this. Mm-hmm. I, I read it on, like I said, on vacation, I was in Arizona and I don't even know what prompted me to to buy this book, yeah. but I bought it and I was like, oh, well, whatever. I, I couldn't put it down. I spent so much of that. Like j- I was just up in my, up in our bedroom, just reading it. I mean, I, I consumed so it. It was so well, good. well-written, just yeah, such pure, a well-deserved, fantastic book. Um, okay. For me, this would be like picking a favorite child. <laughs> Do you have either a favorite song or a current favorite song? Yeah, this. I know. (laughs) I feel like um, I should just send people to Spotify because I have so many. Um, I think when I was going through the documentary Speechless, it's in the new Aladdin movie, and I cannot remember the actor or the actress musician that sings it, but Speechless was definitely on rinse and repeat and um right now i'm totally into the barbie movie i've seen it twice mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. pretty much the entire soundtrack i am obsessed with uh Knuff. i am Knuff, and also billy eilish for me she can do no wrong but yeah it's so, <laughs> there are so, literally so many i am very much into music in different um moments of life so like when Same. I read a book, I usually will have an album that I play while I read the book. And then what's really wild is later on, it could be years later, I'm listening to music and I'm like, it, instantly I start thinking about that book. <laughs> so it's pretty a fun thing to do. But even on my journeys, I'm into soundtracks. I love movie soundtracks. So Meet Joe Black is one of my most mm, ultimate favorite soundtracks of all time. And my husband and I, we love playing this game where we'll hang around for an evening and just play soundtracks songs one after each other and we have to guess either what movie or who composed it or whatever it's just one of our fun little games we play one of my favorite favorite soundtracks like just the not the whole soundtrack but this particular one was um schindler's list Uh, and it's incredible it's incredibly moving and then of course forrest gump um feather yes it's so beautiful it's next level for me i love it so much um Sean loves Road to Perdition. Oh, That's yes. Just, Epic and yeah. very hard to find, actually. It's not yeah. really readily available. I know it's not on Spotify, so you have to actually listen to it through YouTube. Yeah, it's uh, it's beautiful. Patch Adams um, is amazing, too. Oh, my God. There's so many. The American oh, President. Yeah. <sighs> First off, The American President is an incredible I film. I know. It's easily one of my I top know, Betty, five, I love if you. not top three. <laughs> like the, oh, gosh. Like the whole thing of... They drink the sand because they do not know the difference. And, oh, it's nice. so good. Um, okay, quote. Do you have a favorite quote? 
Um, I do, but I'm. You're gonna have to let me Google it because it's a bit long. But it's my literally my all time favorite. I was gonna so ask what your favorite out. movie is, but I know it's currently Barbie. So <laughs> no, I have other I have other movies. <laughs> what is your favorite movie all time? Like you can watch it right now. <laughs> Ever after. Oh, that's a good one. Um, again, meet Joe Black. It's very underrated, but that oh, movie it's so is good. so good. Yep epic especially if you're like an ex-cult kid like there's something especially with death in the conversation yep. about it yes the yes. control of the daughter the father just like wanting something so desperately for her to be a certain thing and then death ruins the plans and like oh god mm-hmm. and it's brad pitt and claire Forlani and uh, you know mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. anthony hopkins i mean can mm-hmm. any of it do wrong mm-hmm. and you have that epic soundtrack i mean i cannot um Anne of Green Gables is another one I could watch. Always. I was just like, all, all three of yep. and that's, But mm-hmm. like, to me, the Anne of Green Gables and the Ever After are very, very, to me, kind of like almost like a given for XATI kids and fundy kids and <laughs> evangelicals. Um, there's, I can't believe I'm so speechless right now because there's like so, so many that I love. Yeah. Um, I always wanted to marry Gilbert Blythe. Yeah, who did? <laughs> because I just absolutely grew up and married somebody that with the same beautiful um, disposition. Yes, of, yes. Of um, Gilbert. Okay, so I have my quote. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, and I literally have never memorized it, and I. I would love to have a tattoo of this somehow, but because it's a paragraph, I clearly am not going to have a paragraph <laughs> on my body. So I'm like, I've got to find a way for this to happen. But um, it's from Beverly Penn. If you've ever seen the movie, then you'll know. But I, it's not the world's greatest movie of all time, but I still think it's wonderful and the soundtrack is gorgeous. Um, no life is more important than another and nothing has been without purpose. Nothing. What if we all were a part of a great pattern that we may someday understand? And one day when we have done what we alone are capable of doing, we get to rise up and reunite with those we have loved the most forever embraced. What if we get to become stars? Mm. And I'm a night sky girl. I love celestial stuff. I go to meteor showers. I have telescopes. I I look at all the things. Um, Even in my EMDR, my safe space is literally space. And so mm. I'll just float with Aurora Borealises and comets and things like that. Um, so, yeah. But like, what if we get to become stars? Beautiful. We've done everything that what we if? can do and we reunite with everyone and we become stars. I don't know. It's just, it's simple, you know? And I think that Christianity for me growing up just made everything so fucking complex. And at the end of yep. the day, however you want to look at heaven or going on to the next life, we nobody knows what's in the the next realm and or if there's even a next and i would prefer to live on this planet as authentically as i can doing the most i possibly can for myself my joy those around me supporting loving and then also amplifying where i can yeah because when this life is gone there's no guarantee of anything after i don't care what any book ever tells you no one's come back and actually told us anything it's all just stories And that's how I see it. So if I get to become a star, hell yes. (laughs) Oh, Lindsay, you already are a star. Uh, Stop it. (laughs) Star. Well, Lindsay. Yes, star. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I look like you've got an open invitation and I know you're already coming back because, (laughs) well, I don't know. I, I think you're phenomenal. 
And I genuinely appreciate your perspective from somebody that's further along in the process in in so many places. And yet where you're at feels so tangible mm-hmm. as well for somebody that's not, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I- you have a tremendous amount of wisdom. I hate how that's connected to evangelicalism, but there there's a tremendous amount of wisdom because you've lived it and your voice is, it needs to be heard more by so many because it's it not only empowers those that have escaped, but people are listening to what you are saying. Mm. And for a generation of people that lack the voices, we thank you mm-hmm. for being one that's willing to speak. Stephanie, so, you're going to make me have tears come out of my face. My eyes don't water. (laughs) They just messed. Thank you, (laughs) genuinely. And I I think that, as we've talked about on this episode, that there are, we have trigger words. And what I hate Mm -hmm. is that so many words have been robbed from us, just like we talked about our playtime and our creativity and our childhood was robbed from us. Words have been robbed from us too. And when there are some words that get me very like twingy and triggery, just even physically when I hear them. And it is funny because when you first said, oh, your wisdom for sharing your wisdom, I was just like, because that's one of the character qualities that Bill really fascinates on. But as you said it, I also was like, you know what? I never attained wisdom in Bill's system. Mm. None of these things were actually attainable. I w- we were never good enough. We were never going to actually catch the carrot at the end of the stick. It was always going to yeah. be a little too far out for us to ever reach because you if you if you become perfect then what do you need the system for? And so for when you said that I went through this really fast like synapsy thing of I have a level of wisdom and I have achieved it by yeah, my lifetime of experience. And that to me is where people become wise because they've had experience. So who can really say that they're wise if they're stuck without experiences? And that's what a lot of these systems do. They bear you down and they don't give you much to experience. But then as you start to get out of it, you realize, wow, I actually did live through a lifetime of all this trauma. And now I can come forward and hopefully we can all do the work. I I want to advocate yep. so strongly for therapy. And my friend Daniel always giggles because he's whoever knew you were going to become this huge therapy advocate because I fought him for years about going to therapy. I was like, I don't need it. I don't need it because I was scared. A fear drove me and was like Mm -hmm. literally the conductor of my train. And so for me to finally have that therapy and I will forever thank my therapist. She knows who she is. And I, I would not be in this clarity if not for her. And for my friend, Daniel, yep. like he was my armchair therapist for five years and he really should earn a medal and have all the money in the world that I cannot <laughs> give him, but really changed my fucking life. And so what I hope yeah. for everybody is that find therapy, but also find your tribe, find your people, even if it yep. is online. We, I have a group online, a discord group. Um, if you guys go to either um, 
the Cult Chronicles on TikTok or on Instagram and just click on the link that's in my bio. It will take you to all the different fun little things I have out there. Um, but there's also a Discord group at the top. You'll see a little icon and you can click on that if you want to join the Cult Chronicles group. And we're not anything more than just a place for you to find acceptance, to air out your day if something was hard or difficult. And everybody in there just comes together and just accepts you oh, that sounds horrible. We're so sorry. Or, hey, I need a resource. I don't know what to do for this. And we all just crowdsource love and patience with each other. And also tough love of, girl, you got to cut your family out right now. You can't talk to them right now. Like it's toxic for you. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, those kind of moments as well. And then we share silly things. That's where I share where all my fun, crazy stuff is coming up and all that too. So find your community and people that will that will allow you to be the sloppy that you need to be as you go through your deconstruction and your therapy. Yeah. Love you, Steph. Well, I love you. And everybody, please go follow. All of her links are at the bottom of this, um, including uh, Lord Mumford. <laughs> Little Lord Mumford. Which is her cat. Yeah. So, I don't know if anyone saw that Easter egg last week, if you looked at show notes, because you should always look at show notes. Totally. Always, because <laughs> I spend time writing those. Exactly. People should read them. So, anywho, check out Little Lord Mumford. He's super He's cute. He's a hottie. So, All right, Lindsay, you're incredible. Thank Thank you. you so much. Love you. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure that you are kind to yourself and to others. If you are interested in supporting this show, please click the link at the bottom to my Patreon. These shows take a lot of time and resources, and any support is appreciated. If you are interested in being a guest, please email the show at focusonyourownfamilypodcast at gmail.com. Inside of the show notes, you will find the links to mine and the guests' socials. Please give us a follow. We look forward to talking with you and connecting with you.